This evening I'd like to offer some reflections on the, the theme of loving-kindness, the power and the practice of metta. When one encounters the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma, or Dharma as it's sometimes called, we often hear or get the sense that it's uh, very clearly a wisdom tradition. And it sometimes can seem, or we could, I think, quite easily get the message that this particular teaching or tradition is somewhat oriented towards, towards wisdom and not so fully embracing of the dimension of the heart that we could speak of as love. And that this is somehow a, a secondary pursuit. And I think it's really important to be clear that this is not really so. Although, indeed, the Buddha spent a lot of time speaking and explaining and teaching the wisdom that he understood through his practice. I think it's very clear that what he was communicating, what he was speaking about, was equally, equally a teaching of loving kindness and of caring. And in fact, there's a reasonably well sort of known encounter where the Buddha is having a conversation with his uh, cousin and attendant, Ananda, who's been his devoted disciple for many years. And Ananda says to him, would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the cultivation of loving kindness? And the Buddha's response was to say, no, Ananda, it wouldn't be true. It would be true to say that all of our practice is for the cultivation of loving kindness. This is quite a powerful statement, quite a significant statement of the Buddha, I would suggest. And this, this process which we're engaging upon, embarking upon, in which we're inviting ourselves to open to a sense of kindliness and caring for ourselves, for each other, and ultimately all beings. This process is the process which, when we enter it wholeheartedly, has a power that can liberate us, that can free us, and at the same time can profoundly heal and transform our world. Kindness, caring, love is not simply a feeling or an emotion that we might encounter if we're fortunate in others or in ourselves. But it is, in my understanding, very much a core or primary or we could say fundamental aspect of the deepest spiritual truth that we can aspire to understand. And that spiritual life is essentially and necessarily concerned with this. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was once asked in an interview to describe or define what his religion was. And his response was immediate and clear and to the point. He said, my religion is kindness. 
And this, I think, is an expression of religion or spirituality that is probably less contentious than many of the other ways we could attempt to approach it. If we talk about belief systems or practices or ideas, even within one tradition, so much conflict arises, certainly between the different spiritual traditions. But if we understand that at the heart and the core of it, there's something that kindness is an expression or a manifestation of that isn't just kindness, but that points to something very profound and deep, out of which kindness arises, from which kindness and through which kindness manifests. The recognition of this, I think, is found in all spiritual traditions. How we might describe going about cultivating it or what the belief system in which that is embedded can vary. But this is universal. And I think it's recognisable. It's like, this isn't news to any of you, I don't imagine. It's recognisable to us and to all beings that there is something about kindness, about caring, about that sense of an empathetic well-wishing that is truly precious and powerful. And so we can turn our heart towards this. We can turn our energy and our effort towards the cultivation of this. And it's important when we do this to really have an immense degree of patience with ourselves, with our hearts and our habits, our reactivity and the places where we encounter limitation or struggle or difficulty. It can sometimes be, I think, that we're here and we've been practicing for over a day now and it feels like, well, gosh, we're you know, well over halfway through the retreat. Am I there yet? You know, is, have I done it? I, I'm not quite sure. And we get a little worried about that if any of the signals from our experience suggest that maybe it's not working or maybe I haven't got it figured out yet. You know, will I have it wrapped up and ready to present to my friends as a, you know, been there, done that sort of thing by Sunday? And I would suggest that it's probably useful to view it in a larger context. And uh, as an instructive story, I think, that sheds some light on this. And in an interview that a, a meditator of about 20 years was having with the Dalai Lama, and this particular meditator was talking about his many years of practice and commitment and dedication, and how there were some very particularly painful and difficult experiences that he was encountering and continuing to have to deal with and address in his practice. And he was saying, after 20 years, I'm still working with these particular difficult, painful things. And His Holiness looked at him with deep kindness and compassion. He said, you know, it's true, those things are really difficult. And it's like that in the early years of meditation. <laughs> So if we look at it from that perspective, we might give ourselves some permission to just be establishing ourselves rather than somehow living in the sort of instant gratification fantasy that somehow we're going to do it all in one weekend and then retire enlightened, liberated and blissfully, boundlessly filled with loving kindness. And yet, at the same time as we recognise that and can hopefully let go of some 
unrealistic demand or expectation upon ourselves or measuring of our experience, at the same time to see what is already here, what is true, available and accessible already, that we can nourish, develop and bring more and more fully forth into our life and into this world that is so deeply in need of it. Just the fact that we engage at all, even though apparently unsuccessfully some of the time, maybe some of the time, you say you mean most of the time, don't you? I don't actually. I think actually we probably easily overestimate how much of what we're doing is um, apparently not fruitful. But nonetheless, there's a significant amount of time where it seems like we're lost or we're confused or we're just not really interested. And yet, it's kindness and it's caring that brings us to do this at all. It's kindness and compassion for our well-being and others that is the basis of any spiritual practice. There's no other reason why we would engage in it. There's no other thing that really makes sense of it. It's because we care for our life. It's because we care for life that we would seek to understand it or to grow in it. And so practice is an expression of the kindness and the caring and the well-wishing that's already there in our hearts and our lives. And through it, quite naturally, we would seek for well-being. We would seek for peace. We would seek for to live with an open heart, to understand what it means to be connected, to realize the end of suffering and freedom from limitation and bondage. All this, naturally, is what we would wish ourselves out of a wish and a natural love for our being. To, that, to have the, the fullest expression or to be the fullest expression <coughs> of what we can be as human beings. Of what we can understand, realise and manifest in our lives. And so we come and engage in this practice, the practice of loving kindness. And we call it a practice because we have to practice it. It's like we're learning to orient and create a, a certain current within our being, within our consciousness. Consciousness is, is something that gets formatted, you could say, to use sort of digital language. It gets formatted in very particular ways and pathways get established by repetition. And some of the pathways are deep and quite rigid and take quite some time before they begin to change. When we're trying to create a new pathway, again, it takes time. But as we continue to come back again and again to this intention, to be present, to wish well for ourselves, for another, for other beings, to allow those places where we can't quite do it, or really don't want to, to be there, and yet not let them determine what's happening in the larger vision and direction of our activity. Doing that, again and again, slowly we begin to establish a momentum, a path. A certain space opens up that we begin to travel within. And this is what we're doing. This is what we're engaging in. It's, in some ways, we could say, a journey. And this journey 
is not different than the destination. This is an important understanding. The journey is not different than the destination. We journey from a place of caring into perhaps a more full understanding and expression of that. But nonetheless, it is of the same nature, the destination of loving-kindness, as the intention and the journeying that takes us into it. So we're not trying to get somewhere else, but more fully come to understand who and what and where we are, of which loving-kindness and caring is a profound and substantial part. And so much of practice is about, whatever we're practicing, it's about coming into balance. We lose contact with what is essentially true and immediate because of the way our mind gets out of balance and is unable to see clearly. And so, as I think I've mentioned on perhaps two or three occasions already, the tendency to focus on the negative or the difficult leads us to orient into a certain particular way of relating to experience. And the invitation of loving-kindness practice to focus on that which is wholesome or beautiful or noble has the effect of reorienting the mind and the heart into a place of balance. So it's important to understand it's not about denying or negating those places that are difficult or that do need some attention, places we need to understand or grow and learn from the limitation or the reactivity that's there within our hearts or our minds. But that for most of us, as I was reflecting in one of the groups this afternoon, for most of us we're so far out of balance towards being able to see all the things that are really wrong and bad and need attending to and fixing in me that we can be lost in a trying a sort of a all encompassing struggle to fix ourselves, to make ourselves better or okay or acceptable. When actually there's an immense part of what we are and how we are that is already beautiful and noble, filled with caring (coughs) and understanding. And to be able to see that, to be able to recognise that. Without that, we wouldn't have got here. We wouldn't have made it here. We wouldn't have stayed here. And some of you may have been wondering whether you were going to or not, but you are. And even if the mind happens to be going somewhere else. It's like in this game, we vote with our bodies. Or vote with our feet, you could say. One is here. The mind can go off and it has to come back because the body's still here. Something reassuring about that, I find. (laughs) If the the mind could really get away, then there'd be problems. (laughs) So we turn towards the positive. And what this evokes in us is appreciation. Appreciation, that sense of recognising the wholesomeness, being grateful for the wholesomeness. And appreciation, although this is obviously a translation of the word the Buddha used, which actually I can't remember in this moment for this particular quality, appreciation, at least in the English language, is a very rich word. 
I, I like to reflect on what it means because it actually has four particular aspects to it. When we appreciate or when something is appreciated, what does that mean, appreciation? There's a sense of gratitude. We're grateful for it. Like we're, To be grateful for our life, to have these days and nights, to have these breaths and moments. We're fortunate. They're not forever. And that preciousness, that, that fortunateness, to be grateful for the preciousness of this life. It's like we see, huh, that's something to appreciate. It may not be perfect or just as I wanted it to be, but ah, I can appreciate this. I'm grateful for this. And so that sense of gratitude goes together with a sense of valuing. Appreciation says we value something. When we appreciate it, we value it. The next meaning of appreciate is when something becomes more valuable, it appreciates. It's like your assets appreciate, or your money in the bank appreciates. It actually becomes more. So appreciate is understood by this usage to have the effect. Appreciation is the effect of something becoming more beneficial, more valuable. And so the, the very act of our turning towards ourselves or another with appreciation has an enhancing effect. It actually contributes something. And we might not be able to measure that or put our finger on it, but I think we can sense that. That something is actually something beneficial and wholesome is amplified by turning towards it with appreciation, by sharing that, by extending that appreciation. And this is part of what happens in the loving kindness practice. We are actually appreciating in the valuing and the gratitude and appreciating and making more value of this. Appreciation also means to understand. I appreciate your point. I understand what you mean. When we understand something or when we understand someone, it is natural to feel love. When we understand ourselves, what we are, what it means to be this remarkable, mysterious and often rather confused being, when we really know what this is, this life that's bubbling through and swirling around, we can't help but appreciate it. Because understanding and caring in the end are not different things. In the very nature of them, the other is there. And the nature of understanding is caring. And the nature of caring is understanding. They're not separate. So in this way, the Dharma as a wisdom tradition is and can be understood as equally a tradition of kindness and love. And so, how is it to turn towards ourselves and our experience and towards others with this intention to to appreciate, to amplify and to understand in this way what we are turning towards and equally to understand that which is turning towards it, this that we call our heart, this remarkable capacity we have for kindness and for caring that we may not always be in contact with but is nonetheless always there just as the sun may not always be visible to us, but nonetheless shines. 
and shines and shines. So what is the understanding that supports this practice? There's perhaps many elements to it, but one of the core elements is to understand karma, to understand the law of action and result. And uh, in sort of uh, popular usage, the word karma tends to be associated with results, like, oh, that's my karma, that's what happened to me. In terms of the Dharma teachings, and I would say the uh, accurate use of the word, but it doesn't really matter actually, you can use a word as you like, but certainly the way the Buddha used the word, and the way I intend to use it. Karma means the action. Karma is actually the engaging of an intention into action. And it has a particular result. So we talk about karma and the fruit of karma. So when you say, that's my karma, what we probably really mean in these terms is that's the fruit of my karma. That's the result of my karma. And in the Dharma teaching, it's understood, and this is a a core understanding, that the nature of the intention from which we act will produce the nature of the result. And what that means is if we act from an intention that is wholesome, the result will ultimately be wholesome. And if we act from an intention that is not wholesome, the result will ultimately be unwholesome. That doesn't mean that through greed or um, aggression we might not sometimes get some benefit for ourselves. But that ultimately it doesn't serve our well-being. And the Buddha spoke of the, uh, the intentions that make a difference as being the intention towards non-greed, towards non-anger, towards non-cruelty. To letting go of the tendency we have for acting out of a place of selfishness or anger or aggression or ill will and cruelty, wishing to harm or hurt another. That so long as we don't understand this, we suffer. And the metaphor that he used to illustrate this was to plant a seed. And he said, if you take the seed of a mango and you plant it, and this, what fruit will you expect to produce? A mango. It makes sense, really, doesn't it? So you take this fruit, this seed of a very sweet fruit, you plant it, you get a very sweet fruit. And then he talked about planting the seed of a neem tree. And a neem, neem although it's medicinal and useful, it's very, very bitter. He said, if you plant the seed of a neem tree, what fruit would you get? Would you expect to get a, a mango? Probably not. You'd expect to get a neem plant, a neem fruit. And he said that the flavour of the intention is the same as the flavour of the result. We can feel when we're caught up in a place of greediness, really sort of willing to disregard others for what I want, for me, me, me. Or we're in a place of anger and we're willing to hurt or push away another to get our own way. If we feel that, we can see how it's deeply painful, that condition. And the result of that action is likewise deeply painful. When we act from a place of (coughs) kindness, the very feeling of it is actually sweet. There's a sweetness in it, in the very feeling of the intention. And the result of it, likewise, 
bring sweetness to us. And of course, this is a you know a large topic, and I could probably speak for rather a long time on it, but I won't at this point. Just to, that sense of what we're doing is aligning ourselves with a wholesome planting, a planting of holding wholesome seeds. That planting the seeds of love and kindness will bring fruit. It may not be that they will grow according to our timetable or in a way that we might have imagined because it's not quite so simple as with mangoes and neem. But nonetheless, the nature of it is inevitable and unstoppable. And this wasn't something that the Buddha would invite people to think about and wonder if it might be true or not. This was something he was quite clear and absolute about. And certainly for myself, having reflected upon it, it has inevitably seemed true in my experience. So I would encourage you to really take it on wholeheartedly. And to see how that when our intentions are towards grasping or rejecting on the inner, or towards being selfish or aggressive in the outer world, how this is actually harmful to us. And to seek to free ourselves from this is not out of a judgment or a blaming of ourselves for this, but out of a caring and compassion for ourselves because it's painful, it hurts, and tragically it doesn't actually work. It doesn't bring the happiness that we hope it might. So naturally, seeing that it brings suffering to ourselves and to others, and in this world, how much suffering is born of those habitual reactive tendencies, selfishness and aggression, craving and aversion on the inside. How much suffering is made of that in this world? Naturally, we would wish to bring it to an end. But it's important in doing this, as I said, that we don't judge it. Because judging is just another form of aversion and negativity. It isn't actually something born of kindness. Or it's certainly not something born of wisdom. It might actually come, because often the judging is in some way trying to make things be better. So there might at some level in it be some wholesomeness. But it isn't really with wisdom. And it tends not to lead towards a a deepening of wholesomeness or well-being. But there is an underlying attempt to take care of ourselves, even in the unwholesome activity. When we're trying to get something for me and too bad if everyone else misses out, it's because we care for ourselves. Or if it's our country doing something, it's trying to protect that we don't like. I don't know if this happens to you, but... Um, it's really hard and yet we see oh it's because at some level it's trying to take care of us maybe not that skillfully maybe not that effectively but that's actually the motivation and in oneself to really look and see how this happens how we're actually always acting from the wish to further the well-being of something or someone though sometimes we're not doing so with wisdom, it doesn't work. If we think I'm going to make myself happier by selfishness or aggression, we're actually wrong. It doesn't work that way. And I suspect you all know that. But nonetheless, that's the framework of understanding this process of cultivation. 
to see that we cultivate non-greed, non-hatred, non-selfishness, non-aggression as a way of releasing that reactivity and aligning ourselves with the, the deeper understanding that, un- that knows, that recognises that our well-being and the well-being of others is actually served by, by kindness and by non-selfishness, by non-aggression. So we learn to connect and be present because if we can't or don't, we tend to get carried away in our reactive habitual patterns. So even as we're cultivating this process of kindness, we're also having this, this process of developing kindness, we're also learning what it means to connect with where we are and simply be present. Because this is the place from which we can we can engage creatively, wholesomely, and with wisdom in the face of experience. So in some ways we can understand the importance of loving kindness as simply that its absence is painful to us and to others. And this isn't what we wish for. Pretty much everyone would agree on this, I think. We don't like pain, unpleasant experiences, or suffering. No one really likes it. And yet, we have to acknowledge that sometimes in life this is what we experience. This is what we encounter. There are times when we feel pain or fear danger and in those times it's really hard to stay open it's really hard to stay connected with a sense of caring, of friendliness, of openness our tendency is to want to pull in to withdraw, to shrink away and the effect of that is that we kind of (coughs) tighten up, we contract we sort of pull in as though to somehow protect ourselves but we don't, we just tighten and lose our fluidity, our malleability the capacity of the heart to respond when we pull in, when we shrink, when we contract. And so when we feel like we don't have this capacity of loving kindness or caring, it's not that we don't have it, it's just that it's become blocked or we've somehow lost the access to it, which we need to rediscover. And as we come to understand what blocks it, and stop reinforcing that. We don't have to make it happen. It naturally comes through. Just as when the clouds clear away, the sun spills out into the sky, warming the earth unstoppably. Unstoppably. So what makes it hard for our heart to stay open? our heart to be open. It seems we have a a deep yearning to be loved, to be held, to be nourished and nurtured as human beings, to be valued, to be cared for. There's lots of ways we can express it. And there can be an immense wounding that happens to us when we 
not felt to receive that as much as we need it, particularly in early years of life. And there can be the sense of how deeply we wish for, or we yearn for love in life. And it's something that scientists have become interested in. And there's a particular experience I heard, uh, experiment I heard about some time ago that's kind of touching and poignant and also a little shocking in its rawness and how much it points to this. And in this, um, in this experiment, the, uh, a young, or in fact a number, I believe, of very young monkeys were taken away from their mother while still, um, still feeding with their mother, but at a time when they were old enough to be weaned. And they were put in a cage with a soft, warm, surrogate mother-like thing at one end, and at the other end of the cage, a bowl full of food. And what the scientists observed, which is what they were interested to see, was that the little baby monkeys would cling to the soft, warm, furry surrogate mother, and they would hold it, and they wouldn't leave it to go and get some food, despite having been shown where the food was. And if they were left to themselves, they would cling onto this warm mother thing that couldn't feed them, cling onto it until they died if they were left there. There's something shocking about that. How deeply we wished for that sense of being loved or held so deeply that we might sacrifice the very nourishment that allows us to live. Because I think we can do that sometimes. Certainly I can recognise it in myself at times. Where out of the wish to be liked or loved or held, one might not actually be true to what is most true for oneself or what one needs, in fact, to be nourished by. And I would say that as scientists, scientists have really come up with the understanding that in order for an infant baby to survive, it needs some love. It just won't do it otherwise. It won't make the effort to be alive unless there is some love in its environment. And reflecting upon this, the conclusion that we need to be loved in order to survive is the conclusion that science has come from. I actually don't agree. I don't think it's quite like that. Because my own sense of it and my experience when I've explored it seems to suggest that when there is that love there for me, and I imagine it's probably similar for you, then I'm actually able to be in contact with my own sense of loving, that that is the place in which it feels safe to love. When I feel loved, it's safe to love. It's like, you know, I'll love you if you love me. You ever heard that one? It's a bit problematic, isn't it? But... What I actually think the mechanism is, is that it is our nature to love. And if we don't feel safe to love, we can't survive. And what we imagine makes it safe to love is that we are loved. The challenge of practice of the spiritual life is to learn to love unconditionally. To not depend upon being loved or appreciated by another in order to open our heart to them. 
because so long as we depend upon how another relates to us or the environment in which we find ourselves, if we say that if it's not what I need it to be, that I can't or won't love, we actually cut ourselves off from this, I would say, most deep source of our well-being, most profound, not the only, but equally deep and profound as anything that is a source of our well-being, is this capacity for loving. And it's something that I think we know, that there's an immense healing that happens when we begin to sense and feel and trust our own capacity for loving. That one of the most painful and difficult things we might encounter within ourselves is the sense of, but I can't, or I don't have the capacity to love. We can learn what it means to let the heart be open, to be fearless in the face of that which may even threaten us, even harm us. And nonetheless, let the heart be open. The Buddha once said, and this is quite a challenging teaching, he said, even though you were being sawn in half by bandits using a two-handled saw, if you should seek to have anything other than loving kindness for them in your heart, you would not be a follower of my teaching. So, you know, we probably, well, that lets me out. Um, and yet, what he's saying is not that you have to be filled with loving kindness for someone who's cutting you in half with a saw. Nor is he saying, well, you have to just sort of lie back and let it happen. If you have no way that you can protect yourself in that situation and this is your final moments what do you want in your heart when you go out into the next whatever that might be beyond death would it not be that we would want to be in a place of caring and kindness or love I'm not saying that would be easy but the Buddha I don't think is meaning we have to be in that place but that our intention and our wish would be to be there so far as we could and if we've understood the nature of human beings and of karma, we would see that someone cutting us in half is obviously going to... That, that's a pretty serious seed to plant. <laughs> and the Buddha had some rather graphic and possibly uh, overly colourful uh, sort of descriptions of what then might be your, seed, your fruit from that kind of seed, which I won't really go into. Um, but... Uh, Leaving that completely aside, it's more like, oh, where do I want to be in the last moment of consciousness in this life? What would my aspiration be? It would be to have my heart opened. So therefore, even in that extreme situation, that would be the intention. And I hope I or you never have to find out whether we could do it. But there's a certain understanding there in that. Because... The natural caring that is of our nature, when, it doesn't, when it's not linked to wisdom, leads us to reactivity and struggle. When it's linked to wisdom, it leads us to transformation. And so some of the wisdom is the wisdom of understanding karma, cause and effect, action and result. The other part that's 
Or another part that's significant with this is the fact that we can't avoid pain in life. It's not possible. It's not because somehow you've done it wrong or someone else has done it wrong that it happened to you. First of all, it happened to everybody else. Even though maybe in a different way. And it's in the nature of life itself. We can't get around it. Pain is part of having a body. It's born, squeezed through a narrow birth canal or plucked unceremoniously into life from a place that's soft and moist to a place that's kind of dry and sharp and spiky in comparison certainly rough and harsh and along the way the body is touched by various conditions discomfort and pain and at death again the body becomes ill and weak and we can't live a life without encountering this and our hearts could we have a life in which our heart didn't feel pain? I don't believe so. And how do I come to that conclusion? Well, as far as I can tell, in our heart's natural capacity for love, if we love something, at some point we'll be parted from it. Because all things that come, one day go. When we love someone or something, at some point we'll be parted from it. And this will be painful. This will be tender and grievous to our heart. It's inevitable. We don't have to struggle with that fact. We might understand this is how it is. But nonetheless, there will be that sense of, ah, we can't avoid that if we love something in life. Because we will be parted from it. And if we don't love something in life or someone in life, that will be painful to our heart. Because that very essential essence of its nature will be unexpressed. And that is painful. So, there's no way around it, basically. It's going to hurt. <laughs> and, you know, that's not to say, oh, you know, more bad news. It's more like, oh, that means it's not because I messed up that it happened. Or someone else messed up that it happened. It's because, oh, it's like this. The sweetness of that capacity to love is inevitably linked with the tenderness of being able to feel loss. They couldn't exist without each other. In that sense of love. And to understand this is to see that the deeper harm in life is not that it's painful or difficult or challenging at times as it can be. The deeper harm is where our heart closes down. The deeper harm is where we withdraw from others or from ourselves, where we separate and disconnect. And this is actually deeply painful and grievous. So the practice is really to not actually avoid pain, though we don't need to seek it. And it's appropriate to do what we can when necessary, to bring harm and suffering to an end, of course, whether in our own life or in others. But being able to actually turn towards the way it opens us up. There's a way in which feeling the suffering of life, or our own life, or others, actually tenderizes the heart, breaks through the calcification and the ossification, the rigidity and the hardness of our being and allows it again to become fluid to become soft so there's a value 
There's a value even in those tender places that we encounter. And even if we don't necessarily go looking for them or find it quite in ourselves to welcome them, at least to know that they actually serve. They serve the process of the awakening of our heart. And so we learn to meet those places of pain or tenderness with kindness. There is nothing else that really makes sense. To learn to meet that which is difficult with caring. This is the only useful, skillful response to it. And to see that in doing so, we actually connect with each other. We connect with the fact that this is universal, this experience of pain and of difficulty. And that when we understand that, what we really want to do is allow the heart to be open. There's a great story of a conversation, or a story I really enjoy, of a conversation between uh, the Dalai Lama and a I don't mean to keep mentioning the Dalai Lama, but but I am, so anyway. Um, the Dalai Lama, I think he's someone who really embodies a lot of this quality in a very beautiful, simple, direct way. He's uh, having a conversation with a monk, an elderly monk who's just escaped across the border from uh, occupied Tibet in the winter and cold with very little clothes and in danger of being spotted by the, the border guards. And His Holiness asks him, he says... In your long and difficult journey, tell me, venerable sir, were you ever in danger? And of course, there was all this danger he was going through, so interesting question. The monk, the old monk, looks at his holiness. He says, only when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. Remarkable wisdom to understand that this is the deeper danger that we face, and truly, in the end, the only danger where we start to believe that closing down and rejecting another is actually the pathway of well-being. So what does it take to face this powerful energy that we have that closes our heart? The, the power of fear, the power of anger, the power of hatred. What does it take to face this? Because these are the energies that tend to close us down. And it can sometimes seem that with anger and with hatred that we're justified in pushing away and closing down because we see the harm that is done. We might see parts of ourselves that have been harmful and feel like I have to close down to this, I can't support it, I can't encourage it, or in others or in the world. There is a place for knowing what is unwholesome and harmful and being able to very clearly say no to it. But that's different than closing our heart. It's very different. And I'd like to try and illustrate that. (coughs) To understand what moves us in life. This is really important. To look and see what moves you. 
to act as you do when you act, for in skillful ways or unskillful ways. What I notice is that when I've acted in ways that harm people, or myself, I've done so from a place of fear, of hurt, of pain, and somehow needing and wanting and desperately trying to get out of it. Not always conscious that that's what's going on, of course. But when I look back and reflect, I can see that's what's happening. When I look at other people, I think I see pretty much the same thing going on. So I'd invite you to really reflect on this point. What's going on for you when you have caused harm to another? Because we all have. No one goes through this life without having caused harm to others. Even the Buddha, for all his immense wisdom and compassion, still abandoned his young wife and infant child in his seeking, his spiritual journey. And it was his pain and his need that drove him to do it. And so for myself, in reflecting upon this, what I've seen and what I've come to be very confident of is that it's always like this. When I've harmed another, it's because I've been in pain and somehow trying to escape from it. That's what's done it. And seeing this really changes how I relate to myself about the things that I have done and will do that may cause harm to others. Because what it means is it doesn't make sense to blame or judge or condemn the being, the person. Maybe to say the action, yes, the action was not skillful. But the person, that's different. Separating out the action from the actor is an important part of this process. That is really the process of being able to forgive ourselves, forgive others, and forgive life for the fact that sometimes it really hurts. And sometimes harm is caused. And there's an image I, I find useful with regard to this um, that I'd like to invite you to reflect upon. And as I'm doing this, I'm aware I've been talking for a while and I've got a bunch more to say. So please feel free to adjust your posture if you need to. I'll try and be succinct. But uh, in, this, in this image, you could just imagine yourself if you're going for a walk in the woods and you see a small puppy and having some appreciation of puppies you reach out to stroke it and as you reach out to stroke it it bites your hand drawing blood just imagine your response in that moment it's like you little you know I'll teach you Alice. this is for your own good I'll teach you not to and we might raise our arm or we might curse it or we might even go to strike it And then just as we're in that reaction to it, having been bitten by this puppy we reached out to be friendly towards, we see that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with the jaws. What happens in your heart and your mind in that moment? As you suddenly realise that this creature that's bitten you isn't actually out to get you, or bad, or cruel, or nasty. It's in pain, it's in fear, it's desperately wanting to escape from that condition. And yet... Tragically, in doing so, it's harming the very person who could probably have helped it. What happens there? There's no judging, there's no blaming. 
It's I'd like, how can I help this being? That would be the natural response, I suggest, for any of us in that situation when we saw the trap on its leg. We might want to do something about the people who put such traps in the woods. But that would be a little later. So that's just a a scenario, an image. And then imagine that some months later, having forgotten all about this encounter, you're walking in the woods, and at this time it's autumn. And you're walking in the woods and you see a puppy. Liking puppies. You reach out to stroke it and it bites you and draws blood. What would it be in that moment, as you look at it, to see that it's up to its shoulders and leaves? It's autumn. It's in a drift of leaves. You can't see its legs. What would it be to know in that moment that its foot was in a trap? What would that require? What it would require, it seems to me, is that we would understand that it's not in the nature of puppies to want to harm or to bite or to attack. Unless they're in pain or in fear or trying to escape from some suffering. When we understand that about ourselves, we can understand that about every being. No being is different than this. And seeing that, then the natural response is to wish to heal, to wish to care for. That the heart, well, we might take really good care not to get bitten again. And that would be wise, we'll not get bitten in the first place. At the same time, we don't have to condemn the puppy that's trying to bite us, or whoever, it seems, is acting harmful, separating the action which we don't support from the being which is suffering in the action. And then, quite naturally, we can begin to let go of the shadow of the past that hangs over us, that forgiveness allows us to release if we begin to see that ourselves and others make mistakes and cause harm because of our own pain, and naturally to begin to care more and more for that, to care for our hearts. When our hearts are in touch with our own kindness and caring, that's actually the deepest protection that we can give them. We can't protect ourselves from being impacted, but we can learn to protect ourselves and therefore actually protect others, protect ourselves from the reactivity and the suffering that is generated. And this is the power of loving-kindness, that it transforms, together with wisdom, it transforms that reactivity and that cycle of harm and more harm, where one gets hurt, blames another, hurts them back, hurts somebody else, and it just keeps on going on. Or we see in our mind, one part of our mind attacking another part. Have you noticed how we see something in our mind and we don't like it, so we attack it with another part? It makes no sense. We need to care for it. We need to care for it. And in doing so, there's a an immense healing that's possible. when we understand this truly and deeply, there's an immense healing that's possible. The nature and the quality of love 
and of kindness is that it actually moves in the space between us. And that when it's unobstructed, it actually fills the space between us. So that the appearance and the illusion of separateness is actually bridged. And we don't experience ourselves as separate or apart. Love is actually the fabric of that connection. Love is actually the way we contact that truth. In the realm of the world and form. It's what reveals that we are not apart. And when we actually see in this way, when we allow our heart to respond, the natural caring that's there becomes limited only by the way we've identified with less than everything and said, this is what I care about. I care about less than everything, less than everyone. And in that way it becomes limited. When we actually start to open and care for all beings, we actually see, we find ourselves not separate from them, not apart from them. And the nature of love is to see whatever it sees as not other, as not something else, but simply oneself in another form. This life in another unique expression. This life that we own. And so there's a natural caring, a natural well-wishing, because the, the seeing through that boundary or that illusion of a boundary between ourselves and others, when that's dissolved, when that's taken away, the natural caring that's there is boundless, it's unbounded. It simply flows, unobstructed. And this is the nature of the awakened heart. This is the capacity that we can come to know and understand for ourselves. To live in and through. And when the heart is unbounded, when love is boundless... Life is unbound. There is no binding of life. It is free. And this freedom is the the fulfillment of that deepest wish we have for our well-being and the well-being of all beings, of all life. To know this unbound life and this boundless love. This is the invitation of loving-kindness practice. To abide in the awakened benevolence of life. This is our invitation. This is the invitation of Dharma practice. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or two, please.
So may we all through our practice and our lives come to abide in the open heart, in the unbounded kindliness of life. for our own well-being and for the welfare of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.